Hi, this is Peter Case. You're listening to the Your Morning Coffee podcast with my friends Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Weekly music news for the new music business. From Billboard, pushing songs up the charts was a label job. Then fans took over. From Media, up close and personal, when the algorithm goes too far. And from the Washington Post, the CD... Yes, the CD finds new life among Gen Z collectors. Jay, how is that possible? <laughs> We're still talking about CDs. What's old is new again. It, it certainly is. And with that, we are going to start the show. We're glad you're here. We're going to push the record button right about now. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! Your morning coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. And now from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Jay Gilbert, it is so good to see you, brother, on Thank you. Saturday for us this week. We are back to Saturday recordings, yeah, and uh, yeah. we have been having a fun time this morning. Oh catching my gosh, up, always so much to stuff. talk about and so much, uh, you know, um, news and things going on in our personal lives and... Uh, we have some exciting things to share with our uh, audience in the coming weeks, and we'll just tease it out a little bit. I know we mentioned this once before, but we have our third year anniversary, and mm-hmm. we have a special episode that we're recording uh, this coming Friday, and uh, that's about all I'll say about it, but uh, we are so fortunate to uh, get to talk to really smart people in the music industry. We are. We really are. And as we keep saying, since we've been done the show... Um, the kind of landscape of knowledge that you need to have in the music space now has grown so exponentially. And, you know, there was always (laughs) a fair amount of stuff you needed to know. Uh, But boy, it's just, it's, I mean, it's hard to keep up. It's hard for us to keep up. And and we really try to to be kept up, but um, there's so much, there's so much knowledge out there to, to be aware of at the very least. And uh, I'm looking forward to doing this particular conversation. Yeah, which me we will too. not speak any more of. Yeah, me too. Sure. And, and you're absolutely right. Uh, to be an artist or a manager or work at a label or distributor or publisher, whatever your job is or whatever you do, you may just be a music fan, but to keep up with 
everything that's going on, we like to say that uh, the music industry has changed while you and I have been having this conversation. And there's a lot of truth to that. So anybody that I meet that, you know, they'll say, well, you know, I've got this down. I, I know this is like, wow, because we keep up on it as closely as anyone. And we learn things every single week. Well, and there's, you know, and I've never seen an exact list. And, and it'd be fun if, if there is some database somewhere that shows you like how many releases, let's say, Capitol Records had in 1975 or something like that. But, you know, not only is this is is the amount of knowledge needed to to really kind of be in the business but also there's just so many releases so many things coming fast and so many trends and so many just things to be aware of if you're yeah. out there involved with artists and releases it is mind-boggling it really and is it really is it and, is and a uh, time. we are, you and I were talking i mean we've been talking for the better part of an hour, but, um, we were talking about a new platform that you and I are collaborating with, um, which we'll, we'll announce it in the next week or two, but it's, it's really sort of, uh, groundbreaking. And that's one of the things that I find really exciting today is these platforms, these new companies that start out to help you either, you know, maybe grow an audience or help you with your touring or with your financials or with AI, whatever it is. And I love that we're having conversations with some of these platforms. And as you and I were kind of uh, looking at one earlier, there's some pretty cool announcements coming down the, uh, the pike. So uh, stay we're tuned, folks. Out. We've got some really great things cooking. Well, and I'll, and so many things that we are looking at and checking out and see in the on the landscape is is AI related, but again, it's not scary AI; it's efficiency AI in many cases. And I think that's what I'm so looking forward to over the next few months, couple of years, is just the the ability to. I mean, my time and your time is so limited. Because again, you, you, there's so many things coming at yeah. both of us. You know, when you're involved with with music, there's just a lot going on. But anything that will help me um, make my be more efficient, just as a mm-hmm. as a as a worker, as an employee, as a person, um, I welcome those things. Me too. And yeah. that's what what I find the most exciting is anything, whether on the creative side or on the logistical side, that makes me more efficient and makes me more effective and saves time. I am so down with. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm all in. Before we jump into the stories this week, there were a couple of stories in your morning coffee um, about uh, Spotify. One headline is yeah. Spotify's most streamed songs of the summer are out and country tops the list. And then right next to that, what are the least played songs on Spotify <laughs> by you know these artists like Taylor Swift, the Beatles, and, and other superstars? And that was in Rolling Stone. So I wanted to you know just... Um, talk about that just for a second because I thought it was really interesting. So for Spotify's top stream songs of the summer, um, let's let's review the uh, top ten. Yes, exactly. Well, and and I will again. You know, the the headline of this is Spotify's most stream songs of the summer are out. And country tops the list. And again, I, I go back to, uh, we've talked about this, when SoundScan first came out. And that was the big revelation to people that maybe didn't work in a record store, which is, hey, by the way, lots of people like country music. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and there was there was really a bias in the business against Absolutely. country music. Yeah. yeah. 
And so it's it's that's what's kind of fun. Um, yeah. So and and if if you're Morgan Wallen. Um, you're kind of a happy camper when you see this list. And yeah. that's really, again, you're talking about country. The singer's song last night tops the streaming services list as the most streamed song of the summer in the U.S., making history as the first ever country song to claim the number one spot. And he's got a couple of other songs in the top 20, Your Proof and Wasted on You. So, you know, it, again, it's, it's, it's crazy how... Uh, country just never goes away, does it? It's it's, yeah, it's always incredibly popular. There's another thing in there. You know, you just mentioned country, but I think there were bias against um, XUS or international music, yes. especially Latin music. And, uh, you know, uh, there are a couple of really popular um, Latin songs in that top 10 as well. And so it's... Yes, country. Yes, Latin. And uh, they they sort of dominated. Yes, they really did. And of course, Taylor Swift makes an, uh, and, and Olivia Rodrigo in there and, and Bad Bunny. Not, no surprise there with Bad Bunny. Um, but there's just some, it, it is always interesting. And if nothing else, it is super diverse. But, but you're right, so many Latin tracks. A lot of artists I've never heard of, yeah. uh, clearly Latin artists. And... Um, you know, this is what people are listening to. And it's just remarkable, again, to see the, the, the depth and breadth of different songs and how diverse this list is. Yeah, I, I, I find it really encouraging. Um, the other part of this is that Rolling Stone piece. You know, the headline was, <laughs> what are the least played songs on Spotify by Taylor Swift, the Beatles, and other superstars? Um, they say, we crunched the numbers for the biggest names in music and determined there is indeed wisdom in crowds. People unconsciously selected some pretty forgettable songs to skip. And before we jump into that, this is so subjective because some of the songs that they picked as, you know, uh, forgettable are some of my favorite songs by these artists. So it's somebody's opinion, but it's also based on the number of streams. And I think that can be slightly misleading as well with some of these uh, um, artists. Yeah. And what was your, your big, well, you, you mentioned actually when we were just talking a second ago, the, they list the Beatles. They have a song called Little Child that was on their first album and that's their least played. And, and they do a little thing on, on here. Does it deserve to be here? And in this case, they said yes, but you were saying that's one of your favorite tunes in the early Beatles uh, songs. Yeah. I just don't think that some of those songs, you know, get the, uh, uh, the amount of spins that they deserve because a lot of people listen to hits and playlists and this isn't going to be one on a lot of playlists. But even this one is they're saying it's their least stream song. It's over 6 million plays. So that's well, low that, for a Beatles yeah. song, but it's not nothing. No, and that's, I think, one of the more interesting things about the article is when you see the least paid, least played streams from certain artists, you're like, wow, who wouldn't be stoked to have that number? So they, they mentioned for The weekend, he's got a song called Belong to the World, they say is is his least favorite, or the, the least streamed, and, and they Spotify, say, yeah, it does yeah. Des- on Spotify, does it deserve to be there? And they say yes. But that, at his least streamed song is 44,217,763 <laughs> plays. Yeah. yeah, that ain't so bad. That ain't so bad. No, it's 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 not bad. But one of them that cracked me up was Rihanna. Uh, now I know that had like a billion five plays. You know, 
Or no, it didn't. No, I'm sorry. No, it's a million. It's a million. No, that's a million. I'm, I'm, yeah, look, I'm adding some zeros in there. So yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, 1.5 million. So that's her lease. And I know a lot of artists who would kill to have, you know, a million streams. And people think that a million streams is common, but Glenn Peoples had a thing in his ledger months and months ago about how uncommon uh, having a million streams is. Yeah. And, and I'm trying to remember, but it was less than 2% of releases get to a million streams. Well, and that goes to show you when you have some of these superstar artists, how even their least playing things, Adele's song Tired, mm-hmm. 38 million plays and change. And that's from her first album. So, you know, yeah, it, it's it's when it's still pretty remarkable that these folks are, are doing that for their least favorite songs. And although yeah. one of the songs they mentioned is a Bruce Springsteen song, Souls of the Departed, 523,000 plays, not very much. And they say... That shouldn't be on the list. Actually, one of the better songs on that album, Lucky Town. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it's, yeah, it's just kind of fun to see this and, and go, oh, yeah, okay, that's 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 not so bad. And, and maybe that is kind of a bad song or not a great song. I'll put yeah. it that way. So let's let's jump into our stories. But before we do, let's thank our wonderful sponsors, uh, starting off with uh, Banzoogle. Your Morning Coffee mm-hmm. podcast is brought to you by our friends at Banzoogle. Built by musicians for musicians, Banzoogle is an all-in-one platform. It makes it super easy to build a beautiful website and EPK for your music. All the features you need for a professional website, everything's built in. Hosting and a custom domain name, dozens of fully customizable design templates, tools to sell your music and merch commission-free, commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, social media integrations, and live support from their musician-friendly team. That's easy for you to say. Seven days a week, your Morning Coffee podcast listeners. Just go to bandzoogle.com, try it for free for 30 days. Use the promo code MORNINGCOFFEE, all one word, MORNINGCOFFEE, and you'll get 15% off your first year of any subscription. That's bandzoogle.com, promo code MORNINGCOFFEE. Indeed, and big thanks to HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It is edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla. HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. Yes, sir. Bands in Town. Over 80 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist services platform, as a matter of fact, connecting over 590,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Indeed, and we're going to be talking a little later about superfans again. Uh, Also, big thanks to the Music Business Association. The Music Business Association creates the rooms in which the important conversations that shape our industry's future take place. Our membership represents every major segment of the global music business, including labels and distributors, music streaming, retail and wholesale, publishers and PROs, rights management and metadata, artist managers, tech and startups, Make sure you go over to musicbiz.org for more information. So big thanks to Banzoogle, Hypebot, Bands in Town, and the Music Business Association. Boy, we certainly appreciate the help every week. We sure do. Could not do it without you folks. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes, let's sir. jump into the first story, let's do it. Jay. This, oh my goodness, it, there's a, really some interesting stuff. Again, we're kind of talking about kind of super fans. This is from Billboard. Pushing songs up the charts was a label job. 
Then fans took over. This wow, is an amazing, amazing piece by Elias Light. Um, uh, we're big fans. Um, I actually was uh, driving yesterday, and I, I, I was talking with um, Glenn Peoples, um, and he and I discussed um, this story uh, quite a bit. It is really well written, and it's it's so incredible how fans have now really taken charge of helping their favorite artist get up the charts and get gold records and all of these things. But uh, let's dive in. This is super interesting. It's great. It says the orders are detailed and easily located on X, which of course is the app formerly known as Twitter, uh, stating we need to tackle Amazon, iTunes, and Cobas expeditiously. For each platform, instructions describe a strict purchase regimen. One copy per version with new card payment method, new email, new IP address. Anyone hoping to execute this plan properly must plan ahead. Again, you will need to have multiple new emails, prepaid debit cards like the Cash App card, <laughs> e-gift cards you can buy at different Wi-Fi locations, cafes, gyms, friends, and neighbors' homes. Sounds like, man, like a, like a military operation. It really does. You know, rotating through multiple burner emails, cards, IP addresses. This sounds like the stuff of an elaborate digital scam. In fact, it's a plan to maximize sales of a recent single, right? Blueprints like this one, itemized and exacting, are increasingly common on social media and fan forums, Right. And disseminated over the years by fans devoted to artists like BTS, Nicki Minaj, Blackpink, Harry Styles, and many others. Right. And man, it sounds like meetings that I was in <laughs> at times when <laughs> back in the day. It says their popularity demonstrates a fundamental shift in the role that charts play in the modern music landscape. Mm -hmm. Before the advent of social media, the charts were primarily an industry concern, says Adam White, who served as the Billboard editor-in-chief for a time in the 1980s. And the industry, retailers, record companies, radio stations were in a position to shape and influence those charts. Yeah, I, I hadn't really thought of it like that, but that is so true. It was an industry thing. You know, these publications like Billboard and Cashbox and things like that, they were really, you had to be inside baseball. It wasn't really for a lot of fans, so to speak. And now that's no. really, really changed. So in recent years, super fans have really commandeered efforts to boost their favorite acts chart performance. Fans have become very savvy about how the industry is creating these metrics, says Michelle Cho, an assistant professor at the University of Toronto, who studies fandom and Korean culture. She said they will take the time to try to figure out what they need to do to protect their artists from losing some of the visibility that they think their artists deserve. Uh, that impulse often sets passionate fandoms on a collision course with any music industry body charged with measuring listener activity. In recent months, zealous fans have individually bought a great many digital downloads of the same song, a splurge that actually doesn't count towards the chart because there is a limit on the number of purchases from a single consumer that are eligible each week. Still, the strategy in part prompted Billboard to change its chart rules earlier this summer. The rankings now exclude downloads from artists' web stores, which usually operate with far less limitations than iTunes or Amazon. So there are limitations, but we haven't been able to find out what those exact limitations are. Like, how many downloads can you purchase before they say, you know what, 
you're trying to game the system. How many times can you stream a song on your DSP of choice before either the DSP or, you know, Luminate or RIAA says, you know what, you're now excessive. I would love to know we what are that really is. curious about right? that. Yes, we yeah. are. Yes. So devout listeners also sometimes play their favorite artist songs in ways that run afoul of the streaming platform's rules. We were just talking about that. Last summer, for example, an internal SoundCloud email reviewed by Billboard noted that quote unquote bad decisions, BTS's collaboration with Benny Bianco um, or Benny Blocko, if I can say it right, and Snoop Dogg. Anyway, um, that was the most popular track in the US that week on the platform. But the same email noted that the song exhibits suspect play patterns suggestive of abuse. Now, SoundCloud declined to comment, so we don't know what that, what that trigger is. Right. So one Spotify employee said the DSPs have to regulate their platforms, cap streams per user, and it creates these battles with the fan bases. Various K-pop fan bases, for example, at most moments hate Spotify because they think that Spotify is scrubbing too many streams off of the overall stream count. And again, Spotify did not respond to a request for comment. Luminate, the independent data provider to the Billboard charts, also declined to comment. Mm, Interesting. Okay, well, coming up with creative ways to manipulate listening platforms and the charts they report to used to be the specialty of record companies. Before 1990, I remember, yeah, before 1991, Billboard sales charts were compiled by calling a panel of retailers. By the way, I was one of those retailers that was on that panel. I worked at Tower Records. I was a singles buyer, and they would call me each week, and I would tell them what my best sellers were. And then I was there in 1991 when they switched to SoundScan, yeah. and there were a lot of upset people. So anyways, so record labels and distributors routinely use strong arm tactics and bribery to sway the process in their favor. (laughs) Yes, they did. The New York Times reported in 2001, Jeff Mayfield, hey Jeff, then director of charts at Billboard, told the paper that, quote, one distribution company president complained that some of his employees spent two and a half work days per week trying to influence how stores reported. What? No way. You take that back. Uh, the, the SoundScan system, now known as Luminate, was implemented in 1991, bringing a new level of rigor to chart data collection by tracking the barcode of CD sales. But that didn't stop labels from attempting to tilt the charts in favor of their acts. Uh, SoundScan co-founder Michael Shallot said in 1996, you build a better mouse trap, and all of a sudden the mouse starts finding ways to get around your trap. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> when these labels would call me when I was a Billboard reporter uh, working at Tower Records, they wouldn't ask you to put something in your top 40 that wasn't really going to be there anyway. What it was, was there was a cadence to it. Like one week they'd say, okay, for this song, we're going for top 20 next week. Then the next week we're going for top 10, top five. And then they'd say, okay, we're going for number ones this week. And it was, those songs were already there in that chart, just not in those positions. I thought I would, uh, I'll just point that out. So at the time, you know, fervent fans did what they could to impact charts, but their means were very limited, right? They could buy multiple copies of a CD, though that, you know, becomes prohibitive, you know, because it's expensive. And for charts like the Billboard Hot 100 that combine sales and radio airplay, they could try to increase spins by calling into a radio station and requesting a song. 
Right, but many modern fandoms are now doggedly fixated on and vocally competitive about commercial statistics. Mm K-pop fans appear especially effective at organizing around achieving specific chart goals. Uh, One Spotify employee said, when K-pop came in, it was like nothing that any chart-juicing machine had ever done before, just on a completely different scale and level. That's crazy. It's crazy. Um, The president of DFSB Collective, Bernie Cho, it's a Seoul, uh, Korea-based artist and label services agency, um, he said that for many K-pop acts, measuring success has become a straight-up numbers game. He compares the massive mobilization of top K-pop fan clubs to the impressive precision of an elite military operation. Right. This mobilization process can also resemble a music industry version of the Political Action Committee, or PACs, that draw scrutiny in the U.S. every election year. Fans often raise money online to buy extra copies of albums or singles and then disperse the cash among other fans to make those purchases, usually with the explicitly stated goal of pushing a release up the charts. These groups routinely tweet that they have amassed pools of tens of thousands of dollars at a time. Yeah, I've read about that. I've seen it. They are so good and so mobilized and so connected because of social media that yeah. they they donate money they they collect all of the, these funds to make sure that they can spread it out through the fan base and move these numbers up it's it's difficult difficult to quantify the effect that the fundraising and donations have on a single's chart position however it's notable that when artists with passionate organized fan bases debut high on the chart they often do so on the strength of download counts that are wildly above industry uh, averages. So while the Hot 100 takes into account downloads, streams, and airplay, downloads have not been the dominant driver of single success since 2014. During the first half of 2023, the average Hot 100 entry owned, uh, sorry, owed less than 4% of its chart points to downloads. Mickey, uh, Nicki Minaj's recent top 10 hits, in contrast, generated between 25% and 41% of their chart points from downloads. Beyonce and Britney Spears have also managed to reach download percentages comparable to Minaj's within the last year on a release a piece. And yeah. again, it's it's so stunning. You know, we, you thought we had vinyl in our rearview mirror. We thought we had CDs in our rearview mirror. We thought we had downloads and cassettes <laughs> in our rearview mirror. Here we are talking about downloads again. It's stunning. Last week, we talked about Oliver Anthony and, you mm-hmm. know, his, his song is just blowing up. But I was talking to Glenn Peoples over at Billboard about that ridiculous amount of downloads. Uh, for that song. And I don't think that was like K-pop where it was fans driving that up. I genuinely believe that that was uh, the behavior. So these efforts pale when compared to top 10 debuts uh, from K-pop, which routinely rely on downloads to account for more than 50% of chart points, more than 50%. Earlier this year, um, Jim and Drew close to 80% of the chart points for Like Crazy uh, from downloads. In 2021, RM from BTS said that if there is a conversation inside Billboard about what being number one should represent, then it's up to them to change the rules and make streaming way more on the ranking. No one has topped the artist Jimin's mark 
in recent history on a top 10 debut, although Jason Aldean came close earning 76% of his chart position from downloads the week he debuted at number two with the controversial Try That in a Small Town track. 76% of downloads. 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 Unbelievable. Uh, the music industry's future appears increasingly wrapped up in those listeners who also happen to be big spenders. The growth of streaming is slowing. Super fans, however, shell out 80% more money on music each month than the average U.S. music listener, according to Luminate's recent mid-year report, which we've talked about. Mm-hmm. A recent email from the company cited that 80% statistic again, adding that it provides excellent Excellent opportunities for merch upsale to this valuable group. I get it. And you and I are both super fans and there's certain artists that you and I talk about where we have to have that color variant or we have to on vinyl. Yeah. We have to have, you know, these things, not just streaming. We want to buy a, a shirt at the show, that sort of thing. So I'll just put a fine point on this great piece by Elias Light that he, he closes the article uh, talking about these developments mean that labels no longer have to spend half of every week trying to influence the charts as they did in the old days, right? They just have to give the most hardcore fans more ways to spend money, money that might not even be theirs. There's your key point. Great job. Yeah, right there. Oh my goodness. It's, I mean, and wow. like, like you were just saying, I mean, I consider myself certainly a super fan in certain with for certain artists. But I really, compared to these super fans, I'm super fan light. I mean, that's that's yeah, a that's a whole other level, level of yes. organization and fandom. But hey, it's exciting and and you know unheard of. Again, you know, when you think back to our you know being in those meetings back you know a, a decade and a half, two decades ago, where you where you're trying to push stuff up the charts. Yeah. And have, you know, if if you could have sat in that meeting and said, no, wait a minute, let's let the fans do that, you would have been thrown out the window. Yeah. Um, but here we are, and that's just a reality, especially and again driven in in no small part by a lot of the Korean acts, the the K-pop stuff. So it's crazy, unbelievable. You know, before we jump into the next piece, I just want to. Uh, mentioned something that kind of super fan uh, activity. Um, our old friend Gary Stewart, sadly, he he passed away, but he was, mm-hmm. you know, he worked with Rhino and he worked with Apple Music. Dear friend, great guy. Anyway, he was such a super fan that he carried around uh, this, this trunk uh, or a box in his trunk full of <clears throat> CDs that he loved. Um, he liked the new pornographers, for example. And if he was having a conversation with you and he'd ask you, hey, have you heard of this artist? And you said, no, he would go to his trunk and give you the CD. And he did the same thing with um, uh, Elvis Costello. Like with Elvis Costello, Gary would buy an entire row at the concert and then give those tickets to friends so they could experience that's super fandom. Yeah, I did it a little bit. Like I remember when I was in high school, dream police by cheap trick came out and I bought multiple copies and gave those to friends of mine. And it wasn't to jack the chart number up. It's just that I loved it and I wanted them to experience it. But, uh, you know, well, and you've done, but you did living room shows for a long time as well, which is a super fandom thing as well. Yeah, if you've never done a living room show or been to one, there's some of the best shows you've ever been to oh, in your yeah. life. Um, I've had, you know, Kurt Smith from Tears for Fear, Tears for Fears, um, Lisa Loeb, um, just some really amazing, um, you know, John Hour from the Posies, and there's just too many to even even mention. Um, Jason Faulkner from Jellyfish. We we did. 
um, dozens and dozens of these over, over the years and COVID kind of shut that down. Um, but, um, they're definitely coming back. My friend Randall Foster in Nashville is picking up the torch and doing some of them. Um, but yeah, that's super fandom when you want all your friends and family and everybody to come see an artist in that, uh, in that way. Totally, totally. All right, so let's get let's jump into this story. It's from Media, up close and personal. When the algorithm goes too far, and this is by Tatiana Cirasano. Uh, Chris, I always I always want to put the R before the right after the C. It's Cirasano. Yeah, I want to. I know. I'm sorry, Tatiana. Uh, so it starts by saying today's entertainment world is characterized by hyper personalization. Everyone has a unique TikTok feed tailored specifically to their own niches. DSP playlists have names like For You and Made For So-and-So. Consumers have uh, come to expect everything they are served to be in their exact niche, a concept taken to its eeriest extreme in the Black Mirror episode, Joan is Awful. (laughs) This is so interesting. She points out that AI, artificial intelligence, is deepening this trend, and, and not only by making algorithms even more sophisticated, but... AI text-to-music generators like Songburst and Cassette AI allow users to whip up whatever kind of music they want. And Universal Music Group's Endel, we talked about that partnership, mm-hmm. reimagines albums for specific activities like sleep and study. Right. So the major label, that's Universal, has now entered a new partnership with YouTube for an AI incubator meant to explore how AI can responsibly, in quotation marks, empower artists. Here's something for the incubator to think about. If we take this notion of hyper-personalization to its extreme, the endpoint is a world where every DSP user receives a slightly different version of every song release. Is this a dream or another episode of Black Mirror? I think she's right. I think this yeah. is coming. I think she's spot on. And that that story about YouTube um, is in your morning coffee this week. Uh, so you can dive a little bit deeper. Um, but she points out that, you know, for every single user, there are basically three trends that are now sort of colliding, right? Number one, consumers expect hyper-personalized content, she points out, and mm-hmm. she's spot on. Number two, in today's remix culture, uh, a song's initial release is just the beginning of its life cycle. You and I talk about songs that are reverbed or sped up. I mean, fans now like to be involved, part of that process. And then the third one is AI is accelerating those other two points uh, she just mentioned. Right. So far, the content feed is hyper-personalized, but in the future... It could be the content itself. Imagine if a single release pack included both the official song and a version ever so slightly tailored to things like the user's BPM preferences, their favorite style of singing, their language, or their heart rate. Maybe the song is slightly sped up, the bass made slightly louder, a piano melody switched for a violin. While all this seems far off, the beginnings of it are already happening in some spaces, like fitness and gaming, where the company Reactional Music enables music that reacts to gameplay in real time. She talks a little bit about the NFT boom in 2021 and makes some uh, comparisons to you know, where AI is entering the picture. But what I found really interesting is she, she has a section called Dream or Dystopia. And she points out that, you know, there are some artists reading this are fuming. 
you know, hyper-personalized music would arguably destroy the art, the art form, by turning something intentional into something that feels more arbitrary. So besides consumers don't always know what they want, which is why in Rick Rubin's studio, quote unquote, the audience comes last. Some would argue that the music industry is already doing too much to try to please consumers by making decisions largely based on what gets engagement on social media. Amen. Yeah, she says, thinking about it from the eye of the consumer, the entertainment experience is quickly turning into a battle between the user and the algorithm's version of the user, prompting the new feeling of algorithmic anxiety. And a song for everyone would also only further saturate streaming platforms. Maybe it makes more sense for generative music to exist in specific spaces like games and meditation apps, but not on the streaming platforms. Mm, Interesting. Perhaps the biggest lesson here is the double-edged sword of hyper-personalization. How can it be used to drive fandom and better consumer experiences just as much as it can end up isolating listeners? As we've seen in social media virality, you know, when things go viral, algorithms that are overly focused on discovery can have the opposite effect intended, end up pushing creators away from their build-up fan bases. The industry is speeding down that path of hyper-personalization, but care should be taken to ensure we don't end up in the black mirror version of this story. Fantastic yeah. piece by Tatiana Sirisano. Yeah, and you know, again, something to think about how this, you know, where this all could end up. And uh, it is kind of a, a scary thought, but I, I do like, you know, when you, when you think back on the artist's perspective, you know, maybe maybe artists are okay with that, but some artists were like, "No, this is the way the song I wrote. I want it to be. Period. Right. I don't want any different versions. I don't. Right. Want, this is what I want." So, and then there's other artists collision. we've been talking about that would love for you to take their stems and create something with it, or use AI to take their art and make your own. So, it, it, there's a spectrum. Sure. Yeah. So things to think about and things we'll be talking about in the future. And just when you thought we were talking about the future, how about this from the Washington Post? The CD finds new life among Gen Z collectors. Yeah. And you know who you know, knows we about were, this, Mike, is I was talking to Tony Van Veen this week, uh, just oh, over yeah. email um, um, from Disc Makers. And he's been telling, you know, talking about this for a while. And, you know, we looked at the, uh, uh, Luminate report. Remember, we had Jamie on from uh, Luminate to go over the mid-year report. And one of the things that jumped out at us were all the physical um, configurations mm-hmm. were up. Every single one, you know, uh, vinyl, cassette, <laughs> CD. And CD was up, you know, almost 4%. And it's it's about 17.5 million units um, year over year. So I, I thought this report was really well done. The story is from the Washington Post, written by Zoe Glasser. Yeah. And again, you know, we've talked about uh, also how um, when we talked to Will Page, we talked a lot about how so many vinyl purchases are made by people that don't actually play the album. Uh, so it's, it's essentially collectible pieces. And again, this is sort of a similar thing. Buying discs in a, is an affordable extension of fandom and comes wrapped in a Y2K aesthetic. 
and they talk about a, a woman named Katie Carnell, Car- Carniel, who's 23, and she's collected every Taylor Swift CD since the original release of Speak Now back in 2010. A new album release means a new CD purchase, a rule she reserves exclusively for Swift, <laughs> whose complete discography lines a shelf in her room at her parents' house. But here's the kicker. She doesn't own a CD player. She hasn't listened to her Swift CDs in years, instead opting for a streaming platform. Right. But she, like other young collectors, considers the CD to be more akin to merchandise than a functional tool for consuming music. I'm going to read that again. She considers the CD to be more akin to merchandise than a functional tool for consuming music. Wow. She loves the included photos, the design of the album. And when she was spoken to back in June, she'd been hoping for a signed copy of Speak Now, Taylor's version, since the record was announced. But that's the point. And it is a merch piece. And so is vinyl in a lot of these things. But yes. but you can't go to a merch table and have a stream signed and take it home and put it on your wall. <laughs> and, and I still do that with artists that I really love. I still buy either a CD or vinyl because I, like I still like to own. I'm old school that way. But yes. here's the thing. CDs make up a tiny percentage of the music industry's earnings. Only about 3% as of 2022, down from 96% 20 years ago. Wow. So digital streaming services have dominated for more than a decade. We know that. Uh, Vinyl's ticking upward every year uh, since the mid-aughts. You know, CDs have enjoyed, they say, no such resurgence. But I would argue that they have, at least if you're looking at the Illuminate mid-year report. But they have drawn a devoted user base of young adults who came of age long after the CD's heyday, these are the self-proclaimed CD people, a small but devoted group that continues to love the CD and its hope for a renaissance. Right. And you know, when we were talking to uh, Will Page, he had an interesting point. We were talking about this whole concept of people buying stuff and not listening mm-hmm. to it. And he pointed out, he said, you know, and, and we, we could see his sort of study when, when we were talking to him, and he had lots of books, uh, big bookshelves in there, lots of books. And he said, you know, I've got this room full of books and I haven't read all these books. And when you put it in that kind of perspective, you're like, yeah, you know what? You get, you pick up a book and maybe you'll start it. Maybe you don't, but it yeah. ends up on the shelf. But anyway. you want to have it. But you want to have it. Exactly. Do you remember the stat that he said on books? No. It was, oh, he, go ahead. No, I don't remember. I remember there was a stat that was shocking, but you're going to tell me what it was. Well, because we had talked about vinyl and that roughly half of the vinyl that's purchased is not uh, listened to. Um, maybe they have a download card. Maybe they put it up on their wall. But he was saying that, you know, with books, that it was, you know, closer to 80% of books yeah. that are purchases purchased Crazy. aren't read. And, you know, I've got a big bookshelf here and some of it is for reference and some of them I've read, a lot of them I haven't yet. You know, my nightstand, I'm trying to get to things and I'll do yeah. that thing that you and I talked about. And I did this with uh, Bono's uh, book, which was amazing, is I'll read at night and then I'll listen to the audiobook when I drive or do something yeah. else or go on my morning walks or whatever it is. So yeah, I thought that was an incredible stat. Yeah. Well, this the story goes on. Many collectors are involved in fandom spaces where purchasing CDs is an extension of their love for their favorite musician or band. If a fan purchases a CD, they are supporting their favorite musician more than hundreds of streams would. The fan bases of some genres seem particularly drawn to CDs. 
again, country and K-pop being amongst the strongest. Yeah. Said, John, uh, said John Strickland, who's the vice president of sales at Sub Pop Records. Yeah, I thought that was so interesting. I sometimes buy CDs because I want the booklet. You know, mm-hmm. I want to see the photos inside and the liner notes and some of those things. And I know you can find some of that stuff online, but I still like to buy some of those things. Um, well, and I also, you know, I, I keep a lot of certain CDs because... You know, we've talked about this a little bit before as well. A lot of material, a lot of lot of things, or not a, a lot of titles or songs, sometimes don't make the transition between formats. Right. So when 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 vinyl went to CD, not everything went to CD. There's some stuff that never made it to CD, and and from CD to streaming, same thing. That's a good point. So because a lot yeah, of that the, stuff, like soundtracks, for example. They're only licensed for a certain term yes. for these artists. And there are a lot of soundtracks that aren't available because they can't relicense those things without yes. having lawyers involved. And, and they just, they don't come out. And to your point, there are a lot of albums that still aren't on streaming services. Um, I, I found it really interesting that Zoe points out that another potential reason for collection subculture is simple. People like objects. And these objects are relatively inexpensive. CDs are both easier to store and less pricey than vinyl. The low price point is part of the appeal for 20-year-old Veronica Fuentes. And they have a picture of her in the article. Fuentes began collecting because she thought it would be funny to purchase a Lindsay Lohan CD she found at a thrift store. Right? So since then, she's established an assortment of mostly 90s alt-rock, which she uses in part for decoration, but she's recently been digging through sales bins for albums from Fiona Apple, The Doors. She plays her modest collection of CDs in the car. She, too, doesn't have a standalone CD player, though she does have a port that allows her to burn CDs from her computer. Man, you know, it says uh, the, the article goes on to say collectors eager for a CD renaissance were excited when in 2021 CD sales experienced their first uptick in sales uh, volume over a uh, over year over year since 20, 2004. Uh, Strickland says CD sales have increased at sub pop records in the past few years. It's a way to get yourself out there and develop a pretty loyal fan base. Uh, this Fuente said, if you go to a house show and you buy a CD for 10 bucks, you're all always going to have that CD and be like, oh, I remember that band. Yeah. 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 It's, it's really great. You know, we, we talked about those living room shows that, that I've done. They always do really well at the merch table because again, you're getting that CD from the artist. Typically it's signed. And then mm-hmm. there's some things like, for example, when the Beatles put out Abbey Road on CD for the first time, it, it was actually a Japanese import, and I don't think it was properly licensed because they pulled no, it off the it market not. pretty yeah. quickly. Well, I still have that, and it's just a fun collector's item. It's just a fun thing uh, to have. And when I worked at Universal, we put together this really great box set of all of Elton John's uh, studio albums, and they gave it to radio stations and sync licensing people and things like that. Well, I have that, and it's something that I, I really love looking through. And when I want to listen to Elton John, I, I turn on my DSP of choice. But sure. it's, it's just fun to have that stuff. And I just thought this was a really, really great article because we've been talking so much about vinyl, a little bit less about cassettes. But uh, great job by uh, the Washington Post and Zoe Glasser. 
Yeah, there's one also part in here in this article I want to make sure we, we mention. It says, notably, you know, our, the RAAA's data only tracks first sales. And they point out in the article, lots of CDs are sold secondhand, and it's all but impossible to track them. And uh, John T. Coons, who's the owner of Waterloo Records oh, down in Austin, John said that his, yeah. his, last, his used CD sales have remained consistent, even as his new CD sales wobbled during the rise of yeah. streaming. So again, there's a lot of consumption going on, but we're just not being able to track. That's it, a so. great point. And I've talked to yeah. people about this. We need to have a chart for used. We just do. Yeah. We need to have a chart for used uh, sales from these indie stores. I think it's really, really important because I think there's a lot to learn there. Um, and when we went through the lockdown and um, pandemic, you know, we had some problems with vinyl and, and having a capacity and the, the raw goods and all of that. And I remember talking to Terry Courier at Music Millennium and talking about, just think how many more we could have sold if we could fulfill the orders. Yeah. And I wonder on the CD side, if we had these things uh, tracked, you know, the used, and if we, you know, if everything was available, I don't know. I think we could uh, really grow the music business in general. Yeah, without a doubt. Hey, and on that note, though, Jay, it's time to wrap this show up. So we do want to thank our sponsors for the show, oh, Banzoogle, Hypebot, Bands in Town, and the Music Business Association. And if you do, if you dig the show, both Jay and I would really appreciate it. If you tell one friend, we would certainly, certainly, certainly appreciate that. Yes, sir. Uh, so, and of course, thanks to you for listening in. Jay and I do not take that for granted at all. So on behalf of Jay Gilbert, my brother from a different mother, we say thanks for listening in, and we'll see See you next time on the Your Morning Coffee Podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.